Welcome to Brazen Education with Educator Barnes, a podcast with a focus on speaking your truth, being transparent to help others, and having no shame about it. Because we can't move forward until the truth is known. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Brazen Education. This is our first uh, episode for 2022, and I'm super excited about the two guests that I have today. And um, we are actually from multiple locations. So um, Ashley and I are coming to you guys from Indiana, and um, Dr. Sashi Tikku is coming for us all the way from Mumbai, India. So for us, it's the morning time, and for her, it's the evening time. But I'm so grateful to have them here. Um, sex education seems to be a taboo topic, but it really shouldn't be because sex is a part of our lives. And so it's something no one should be ashamed or afraid to talk about. But especially when it comes to children, there's a lot of um, controversy or thoughts about what is the best approach in the best way. And so in Indiana, where I'm currently at, um, sex education is really focused on the abstinence base only. And we know there's other ways and other perspectives and other philosophies. So this is an opportunity to learn a little bit about that. So let me introduce our guest that we have today. Um, so we have um, Dr. Sashi Tikku. She is an occupational therapist and sexuality counselor. We also have Ashley Robertson. She's an inclusive sex education educator. Um, ladies, welcome to the show today. Yay! So happy to be here. <laughs> so let's get started. Can you guys kind of tell us um, what is your approach to sex education? How do you approach um, this work? Ah, uh, it's 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 huge. So um, bef- so at the moment, I am working in a telehealth and a home health setup, right? But before that, uh, as as in when I just graduated, I started working in a school based setup, which meant uh, as a new freshly new grad, I thought that I had the same line of thought like any other professional that it has to be discussed with adults. It has to be discussed with people with disabilities. Um, So you get you know what I'm getting at. Right. But then when I actually started working with kids, I realized occupational therapy is all about occupations. And these children are developing their sexuality. And by that, I do not mean that it it is supposed to be inherently sexual. And I have learned that later on as I started practicing with these kids. These kids have been phenomenal in letting me know that sexual development isn't only about a penis and a vagina or intercourse or does have to do something with genitals. Because first, it starts as an information gathering process, which is highly sensory based and it happens on the brain first so later on as we grow into adults we have our hormones and then the genitals so it's like mind-blowing so for me i think that is one of the biggest lessons that i still take away from my first job and that has always been my approach taking out the sexual from the sexual sexuality because just because the word, just because that word has sex in it, we tend to stigmatize it even more. So actually starting with the fact that there's nothing inherently sexual talking about sex, sexuality development. It's just like a cognitive development stages. Everybody goes through it, starts at a very early age, and it's equally important to start talking about it and nurturing it and shaping it from a very, very early age 
irrespective of the genders, irrespective of their cognitive abilities, irrespective of their gender, class, race, anything for that matter. So I think two things. It's also inclusivity. So yeah, that's that's how I sort of approach about it by changing the script a little bit. Yes, I'll add on to that, that one of the um, metaphors that I try to share with families is you wouldn't say to anyone, like, don't have vegetables until they're, they've hit puberty. And it's the same sort of thing. We want our children to begin eating vegetables as soon as they're introduced to solids. And then we want them to try canned vegetables and fresh vegetables and frozen vegetables and pureed vegetables. And we want them to experience all that vegetables are early and often because of the amazing vitamins and minerals and sensory textures that 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 brings to their lives and then like later on they can cook and they can learn to cook the vegetables <laughs> so i try to create that metaphor for families because it's the same sort of thing we want kids to um experience what their clothing feels like on their body and have a say about it and have some autonomy on choosing clothing we want them to be able to um go into a swimming pool and be safe about it early and wait until they're comfortable and then come back out um, and be able to say no i don't want to do this just yet but we also want to be able to like foster our children in slowly to this idea that there are responsibilities involved with keeping themselves safe. And so all of this sort of stacks on themselves to create this idea of um, responsibility for our sexual health. And, and exactly, this is like early and often and just a normal part of life that we all want to um, acknowledge and foster for our kids. And we know that parents are typically seen as children's first teachers in so many things, and this includes this. Um, but many parents don't have a good uh, experience with their own parents in talking with these topics. And so then when they have their own kids, they either kind of bumble through it or they don't know what to do. I know with my parents, I didn't really talk to my mom about it much. Uh, my dad did most of the talking, but it wasn't really talking. It was like, here, read these books. And so it wasn't even like an interactive thing. And if you had questions, it was like, here, read another book. And sometimes you don't want to just keep, like reading the books was great because you learn stuff, like you said, like informative stuff, because you have like kids who have older sisters and brothers who learn things and that may not be the most uh, solid factual information. So on one hand, you learn this factual information, but you're like, but these hormones and like puberty and I'm uncomfortable and I want to talk to somebody. So thinking about working with parents, um, what tips or advice or even resources um, do you recommend to parents when or even how to approach this topic? Because a lot of parents are like scared to death to even like have this conversation, but knowing that they need to have this conversation, because if you don't, you know, it's how you get into the situation with like unplanned pregnancies and like kids like feeling uncomfortable with themselves but not knowing who to talk to about it. Yeah, so one of my favorite um, suggestions for families is that they try their best not to talk in these conversations, which I know sounds weird. But the goal as a parent is to be an askable parent, which means we're not talking heads at them. And so 
if you can try your best to do like a 30-70 where you talk 30% of the conversation and then your kid talks 70% of the conversation, that's going to be a more effective way for these topics, which would sound sort of like you ask a question or you say something like um, an I wonder statement. Like, I wonder what it means when they say blah, blah, blah. And then like you choose some sort of slang term that you know what it means, but you're not so sure if your kid knows what it means. So you're not directly asking them like, what does this mean? You're like, I wonder what it means. Or I wonder what it's referring to when they say this. And and that's sort of the, the plan for the conversation is like you start with this jumping off point, you see what they know, you try to gather information from your kid, and then you try to continue the conversation with another question. Um, the goal being that eventually maybe your kid will ask you a direct question and then you can share information, uh, but you're not a talking head at them. And so that's sort of the the what I try to share with families is like, try not to talk, try not to be like giving all the information. Instead, try to be asking questions and getting inside your kid's head. Dr. Shakti? That's perfect, that's perfect. You know, just to add on to that, I think, uh, even when, you know, they find that, okay, we are supposed to ask these questions or, you know, they are like, when do we insert these questions? And I'm like, every moment with your child is a teachable moment. So you just need to find the right ones so you make a right impact. What happens is, again, if they are children. They pay attention some of the time and the rest of the time they aren't curious and they have selective listening. That, that's completely fair. We do that too. So finding the right moment actually hits the right tone. And again, it doesn't have to be long. You know, in that moment, you can use five or 10 minutes as long as the child is with you, is curious about what they want to ask, is curious to see if how you react and respond. And those are two very different things. So again, react and respond and then go about it. And it just has, has to be about five or 10 minutes. That's it. It doesn't have to be a long conversation. You do not have to bombard them with information like Ashley correctly said. It's keep it as open-ended as possible because you actually want the child to feel empowered, but also you want to create a space where you aren't uh, imposing your own biases. And the stat, that brings me to the second part. Even before you start with your child, start with yourself. Um, in the most layman terms, get your shit together. Uh, we have we have been taught so much. Uh, even today, I I'm I'm 24. I'm still unlearning most of the things I've been taught, and it's ridiculously hectic. It's exhaustive to make sure that I'm not judging someone. To make sure I'm learning what sexuality means. To make sure uh, that every every time I look at a person. I see here what they're going through, how they respond to stimuli, what do they like, what does desire look like for them, what does their body feel like for them, how do they perceive their own body, how do they perceive the sensations in their body, uh, what do they feel about it, their opinions about it. There's so much happening. There's so much happening. And so I think understanding your own biases and knowing that you can be flexible and just a teensy bit kind to your body is going to help and transform your children in such brilliant ways. And I think this also applies to educators and teachers who have, and even therapists who are in direct contact with children because children are going to pick up these messages. Children are always going to pick up your body language and they are hundred times smarter than we are. So that would be, I think the second thing, um, uh, adding to whatever just Ashley said. <laughs> I think you mentioned a good point about like the adults need to figure 
themselves out. And you talked about like unlearning different biases. Um, so if you're starting with the adults, like teaching the children, what are tips or how do you, how does an adult go about like unlearning? Because you get into these situations where your beliefs about like what a person should do or what their life path should be may be in direct opposition to what your child is telling you. So if you're sitting there and you're trying, okay, I'm going to do the 70, 30, I'm going to let my child talk. And the more your child is talking, you're like, I do not agree with my child. That's not how I was raised. Those are not our beliefs. Like, how do you as a parent be supportive and also become comfortable? Because we also know, like, grownups can't even talk about sex. Like, it's hard for even grownups to talk about sex and sexuality and even being comfortable and even confident in our own bodies. So I guess flipping the question back, like, how do we start with the adults and then how do adults what is the process that adults should do when a child is in like opposition of their belief system? So I think I would start by understanding how the brain works. So everyone has a brain and usually it's triggered the same sort of way in these situations. Inside, deep inside our brain is a little part called the amygdala. And the amygdala is our lizard brain. This is the part of our brain that's responsible for how we react in situations of danger, actual danger. And so like if a dog is running at you, going to bark and bite your face off, the amygdala is the one that makes you run before you even think through the process. It's the one that reacts. So it's fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. And those are the responses that this ancient part of our brain just does naturally. But that also means that in times where we're not in danger, but we feel threatened in some way, it is also activated. So if we feel a threat to the way that we parented our child and how they're turning out, if we feel like there's some sort of negative outcome that has resulted because we haven't given our kids the right moral compass or whatever threat that we perceive in this conversation about sexuality, morals, ethics, then our amygdala gets triggered. And we can't actually use our thinking portions of our brain when the amygdala is triggered because the amygdala sort of like shuts off the thinking portions of our brain. So the only thing we can do in those times is start to recognize where we feel the sensation of our lizard brain in our body and start breathing. Because the thing that turns off the lizard brain is deep breathing. That's literally like the only thing, deep breathing and time. So if you're triggered by something your kid is saying and all of a sudden you think, wow, I failed as a parent or like my kid's going to die or they're going to get a sexually transmitted infection because whatever it is they're saying means that they're not safe. And so all of a sudden you're triggered. There are some places in our body that our amygdala usually shows up and then if we can recognize that pattern in ourselves, we can start to notice, oh, okay, I can't think right now. I just need to breathe. And you can learn to say something like, I feel a little upset, but you did nothing wrong. I'm going to go breathe for a minute and we're going to come back to this conversation because I don't want to say something wrong or something that's going to hurt your feelings. And then you just give yourself a timeout. And come back in a few minutes when your lizard brain has stopped being stupid. So some of the places where you might feel this trigger, this dysregulation, would be um, if your jaw starts to feel really tight or if you feel like you can't swallow and your throat and neck feels clenched. Some people feel it in the pit of their stomach, like like they feel like nauseated all of a sudden. Some people feel a pinch between their shoulder blades and their back. Um, 
and then other people feel it all sorts of other ways. Some people get clammy, clammy um, palms or they start to feel hot. Some people get rosy cheeks. Um, but there's basically it just is a physiological response to your lizard brain. Um, and most people feel it the same way every time, wherever it is in their body. So if you can recognize when you're starting to get dysregulated and you can teach yourself this phrase and then you can start breathing and then you can learn how to re-engage the conversation safely, you are like on it. I think um, for me, it always comes to the power of introspection. Kids um, have quite concrete ideas when they are younger. For them to actually develop these abstract ideas, it takes a while. So I think it's a good preparatory phase for parents to actually understand what do they think of their sexuality. And by introspection, I mean just ask why. Even when you feel angry, you feel you do not agree with this, just ask why. Uh, where did you receive that message? How does that message make you feel? Do, does your consensus actually agree with the fact that this is how it is? One of the good places I encourage parents to start is to go back, see what sex ed looked like for them and how it made them feel. And then correlate it with the time now that they are as adults, how does that education that they have come from make them feel? And most of the time, it's just a lot of disappointment. And then I just ask them if they want the kids to feel the same way as they did decades ago, right? And and that in itself is a very threatening thought for parents. I, I do realize that they are scared to, sh scared to be inappropriate to their kids. But then knowing that no knowledge can cause even more damage, I think this helping parents realize that setting is really important. And then some of them do come up. Also, this makes them very open to you by asking, uh, does that mean we have to talk about sex right away? Does that mean we'll be encouraging them to have sex right away? And I feel so proud in sharing statistics with them, telling that that's absolutely not the case. You are actually empowering them, helping them make more safer choices. Um, or, you know, even just a small teachable moments from early on, which are a part of sex, sexual development and sexuality development is saying, asking your kids if they want to be hugged, asking your kids if they want to wear a particular piece of clothing, asking kids if they would want to kiss you or you or would you like to kiss them? And making these in turning these moments into questions and understanding that they have the autonomy towards their body on in a very early age. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter your parents, they will still trust you. But letting them know that they can truly, completely, physically also trust you is, is such an empowering moment that I see even with neurodivergent clients, forget about neurotypical clients, but even neurodivergent children, it becomes such an important and teachable moment. So I think the introspection of continuously asking why, where, how, and what am I going to do? And a very star noted, you know, highlighting this point is control. If you think you are not in the right space to have this conversation, what you can do is stop the behavior or stop the question at the moment or let them know that, as Ashley rightly said, I do not think I am competent enough to talk about it right now. Do you think we can discuss it on a later date? Or I'm exhausted, I'm tired. Can we do this on a later date? This again shows that parents can be sometimes not be available and that's okay. And that's okay. That in itself is such an important boundary that parents need to create from their children and not exhaust all their resources. Because at some point, even you are going to get annoyed. You are a parent, but you're still a person. And you cannot forget that. You can absolutely never forget that. So 
I think these few things are really important. Next, I would say when you spoke about resources, where can parents go? What's happening? So I ask parents to be really chilled out about it. If you have time to listen to some podcasts, there are tons of podcasts available out there. I have created blogs about it on my website, which is sexloveandot.com, as well as on my Instagram, uh, which goes by the same name, where I curated so many resources about it that you can go ahead and watch some of those. Now, some easier ones that parents can actually access um, is definitely most common ones is available on YouTube, which is called as amaze.org. They have these beautiful two short videos that talk about gender orientation, sexual orientation, polygamous relationships, monogamy, what does it mean um, to have gone through sexual assault. And it's put into such great animated words. And it's just three or four minute long videos, nothing more than that. And it's a beautiful way for parents, for parents actually, to learn that the language needs to be simple. And how can they make this more affirmative but also informative at the same time and gives the concrete information which is required at a particular age you can definitely build on that but i think this becomes a more important resource for parents because you are using simpler terms you aren't googling high high um, scientific information with extreme words that you have to go back and google again and go ahead to the glossaries it's very simple um, another resource could be Everybody Curious, where two sexual educators, Nadine and Eva, come together. They talk to uh, kids who, uh, puberty kids, I think, kids who are in their puberty and young adults. And again, it's a very classroomy kind of setup where they go ahead, ask questions, tell them about a certain topic, and make sure that this conversation is more interactive, where they know they can ask questions where they know they can pose a question and ask them, do you think this is a myth or do you think it's a fact? And if you think it's a fact, why do you think that way? And again, going helping them understand that they can go ahead and build the, build the skills of introspection again. Um, for other books, I think there are so many of them. But uh, I think the last one I would say, or the one-stop destination for uh, parents to go ahead and even kids to go ahead is Sex Positive Families. It's such a comprehensive resource. They talk about podcasts, they talk about books, they conduct workshops. And it's it's so great to see parents and kids come together and students and teachers come together and learn in a more sex positive environment that talks about comprehensive, radical and development sex ed. I think these three resources are something that I swear by and even I learn from on a daily basis. Yes, I'll add to that. Um, the American Academy of Pediatrics also recommends Sex Etc., which is a website, sexetc.org. Um, I particularly love the glossary on that website because it tells you like all the words and what they mean in ABC order so you can find stuff and be able to learn and understand what it is your kid's talking about. Um, and Scarletine is another uh, website that is useful, especially for teenagers, because m now a lot of kids are not going to read a book if you give them a book. But if if you um, leave your web browser open to to, a you know, like a website and they just happen to see it, then they might Google it later and dive in a little bit more. Um, so those are two more I'll add to the, the pile of resources. 
And you guys really emphasize your first point about like sex education just isn't about sex um, because you guys talked a little bit about consent. And sometimes we forget like consent is not this thing that happens where you're just going to have sex. It goes to um, like one of the things I had to communicate with family members if because sometimes as kids, you feel like some adults feel like they have no ownership over, over themselves. And so like sometimes my kids do not want to hug family members. And that made some of my family members really upset. And I said, they have the right to say, no, I do not want to be embraced. And even as a mom, like sometimes I like want to hug my kids and they're like, no, mom, I don't want to hug right now. And so even though like personally inside I'm bummed, I'm like, I'm like your caregiver, like you should hug me. But I also want, we are modeling what we want our children to be able to do. So if we don't model for them like what consent is then they may feel like they can't say no when someone's asking them to do something that they don't want to do or not comfortable with. And so I think um, you guys made a, a lot of good points about that. So if I'm a parent, some parents are like, like, when do I start having these conversations? Like what is uh, too young or what is too old? And I know Ashley, um, you do work with the OWL curriculum. So this might be an opportunity to talk a little bit about that. But um, you also guys, you talked about like making it like, age appropriate so um when do i start having these conversations and depending on when i start like what am i saying to my kid because i know some parents are like i don't even know like when to start or what to say and like should i start with puberty should i start when they start talking like when where how <laughs> i love this question um I want to talk real quickly about the hug thing, because that's something I hear a lot, especially with parents who have kids who are not really big huggers. And I wanted to offer this alternative because this is something that I feel like doesn't get enough news, enough press. Um, if your kid enjoys rough and tumble play, so like wrestling or like um, like big squeezes, that sort of thing, it releases the same hormones in the brain as hugs. And so if your kid's not a like a lovey-dovey hugger and your kid might enjoy like a big couch like slam, <laughs> like that, it literally creates the same bonding chemicals in their mind and in their body. And so if you can switch your like it, the way you show love to your kid and be like, hey, you want a big squeeze and like body slam them on the couch, like if they say yes it's literally doing the same thing for creating that I love you feeling and that attachment for them. And that's been sort of a, an aha moment for some of the families I've worked with because there are a lot of kids, especially neurodivergent kids who are not huggers and they're not affectionate. But if, if you would wrestle with them, they would be all about it. So if you can create in your family some space for consensual roughhousing where there's rules about make sure it's, you know, shoulders down, make sure it's on a bed where there's no sharp corners nearby or windows where their heads can go through. You know, if you can create some safe rules for your family, doing this like wrestle play actually creates the same sort of loving feels for a lot of kids who are not going to want hugs. And that goes along with this idea of what is appropriate and when does that start and stop? Um, we don't want to be tickling our kids unless they they want that. So as early as like infanthood, we want to be asking and checking in as we're playing with our children and stopping whenever they want to stop and starting again whenever they want to start again, because that shows they have the power, even though you are the adult. Um, and then as that goes forward, um, play play with their body. 
it stays the same, meaning you check in consistently throughout the play um, and you stop whenever they want to stop and start whenever they want to start again. Um, and then the question of like, how and when do I talk about this? The goal is for it to be continuous, the same sort of way that you would want to talk about numbers or talk about colors or talk about reading and letters. You don't expect your kid to just magically read overnight and you don't expect your kid to just know how to do algebra. And it's the same sort of building that we want to think about for sex ed. Uh, we're going to start with this idea of bodily autonomy and having our yeses and nos um, respected. And then we're going to move into giving them some more space when they're becoming more private and making sure that we're knocking on the doors when they want the door shut and moving into this idea of new rules and expectations within the family surrounding when do I communicate with my parent about who I'm with and how I'm behaving when I'm with them and what are the um, rules about safety for what my family knows about my whereabouts. So we're just, we're changing as we go and we're laying the groundwork work as they're younger so that it's not such a big, like the light bulb turned on and now I'm allowed to do all of this stuff. No, that's, that's not the way they read. That's not the way they learn math. That's not the way they learn anything. So we want to sort of think about this as like a stair step process where we want to build the stairs with them as their parent um, and as their caregiver so that when they get to that very top step of like sexual intercourse, they have all of this groundwork that's that's getting them there safely. I think to add to that, I think uh, would be some. So for me, at least it has become really important as a therapist, knowing that I've worked with kids is to actually help them understand their body. And I think that becomes a very important part of it. And I remember the song. I, I think everybody knows that head, shoulder, knees and toes. We know that. And I started with breasts, nipples, vulvas, penises, foreskin. And you have to incorporate this in the normal vocabulary because what happens in India, and I'm pretty sure this might happen in other countries as well, we tend to label uh, genitals and all the private areas within our local languages. We have about 20, 29 regional languages here in India. So imagine the amount of inconsistency an educator or a therapist might have understanding what the child wants to communicate. So I am assuming that as soon as they have been put into a structured environment, or even if they aren't, when you are trying to give some amount of structured play, it's great for them to know that what their body has. And that includes everything, including their genitals, because penis isn't a bad word, breast isn't a bad word, it's a part of your body. And I think that could be a great starting point. The next phase that I want parents to move into as the child grows is about understanding emotions because that is going to be a roller coaster understanding that i'm irritated and be able to voice that out i do not want to talk i am really angry and still be able to have a calm voice and listen to them i think that's a real challenge uh, knowing that they can label their emotions they can step back from it and then come back to you because it's not going to be as sweet as it sounds. Everything is a chaos as the child grows, but it's about embracing that and how can we do it in a much better way and giving them that giving them that vocabulary about what can they do. Uh, the next thing I think uh, important for growing children would be understanding grooming. 
uh, how are they supposed to groom or if they even want to groom at all um, is waxing a thing uh, is waxing good do they want to wax do they want to shave do they want to trim how can they do it in a more safer way because it's a very legit occupation that they might be engaging in in like three or four years for the rest of their life if they want to and this is a good good time to even talk about body image do you want what are your opinions about body hair do you want to keep them do you not want to keep them the significance of body hair um why is it that we see people shaved completely and it's it's a good conversation it's a good healthy conversation controversial but a good conversation into us understanding where the child stands in terms of their body image and how they want to represent themselves as sexual beings which is huge which also means going out um and Another occupation that I think is really important is them shopping. If a parent decides what kind of lingerie would they be buying, what kind of briefs would they be buying, would it be a weekend underwear, would, be a, would it be a brief underwear? I think allowing the child to even explore as they grow up as to what kind of lingerie suits them the best, what brands can they look into, uh, how can they find the, a better cup size and how bras and everything else works. It's a complicated conversation. I am, I am, I still have a hard time figuring out bra sizes because it's so difficult, right? But for them to have these conversations early on, you are actually equipping them to take these things ahead in their life, right? Uh, another important thing that comes is about menstruation, uh, the, the menstrual products that they can use, what is about how menstruation works and i think this works for all genders i cannot encourage this enough just because a person has a penis doesn't mean they do not have to know about menstruation everybody needs to know about it because you are going to deal with somebody who is menstruating and you have to be kind and you can never say you are pmsing so parents please do better i think and giving them the options that since um knowing that i worked with neurodivergent kids some amount of my work focused upon finding the right pad if they can't uh, if they do not have the right cognitive abilities or they do not have the mobility enough mobility to insert a tampon or a menstrual cup knowing that they have to find the right texture of a pad is extremely important something that does not trigger them something that does not make their sensory system even more overwhelming or overactive which again affects them emotionally so these are very even though it may seem really small for us, but it makes a huge impact for children who are growing into it, who are trying to understand it. Um, I think with, go ahead, Ashley. Can I just add on to this that if you're doing all of these things slowly and like consistently throughout their life, the way you react is paving the way for being an askable parent. So you said that earlier, like how you react really matters and what you're not saying and what your body is saying really matters. And so you can fail at this over and over and over and you can have a, a gross look on your face and be grossed out over and over and over and your kid will still continue to come back to you because kids are resilient and they give people another chance and eventually you'll get it. And then you'll be like, oh, that felt better this time. And then you'll react better the next time. And then you'll react better the next time. And so it's okay if you fail for a lot of times before you start getting the hang of it. But I just wanted to touch again on what you said earlier about your reaction and your body language giving you this opportunity with your kids. Thank you. <laughs> That's so important. I And like throughout this process, again, like we speak about reaction and responding. Reaction is quick you do it. You don't think about it. And when Ashley mentioned about amygdala, 
it's it's that person who's responsible for a reaction but when you're actually calm you're actually responding you are actually making your frontal lobe think process comprehend and then give a reaction and there's a huge difference because you never know how your words hurt hurt your child or how your words influence your child i know there are so many times the things that my mom would have said as a kid um or slut shamed just because i spoke to a guy that it still stays in my mind even though the the dynamics of a relationship might have changed but it it still it has still stayed and that's what i think even ashley and i are here to say or even uh, yoshanta has here to say is that whatever you do early on stays with your child no matter how right or wrong you're trying to be just know that you can be yourself uh, and you do not have to force any of this because the moment you start forcing it it means you're bound to make mistakes that you wouldn't have made in your natural being and that's that's really essential and it's always okay to go back to your kid and say i didn't like the way i did that it is always okay to be a real human and say i want to apologize you brought up this thing that i think was hard for you to bring up and i'm proud that you brought it up and i didn't handle it well because those are the moments of repair that model for your kid how to repair like there's no shame there's no embarrassment in any of that like say sorry take responsibility for those moments when you didn't do your best and you don't always have to be like super perfect amazing awesome parent you can be real with your kids Absolutely. yeah and i think that's like super important because like sometimes my kids um because they're my dad got them this book about their it's like a boy's book to their body and so mm -hmm. they've been reading it and we've been talking about it and so sometimes randomly i'll get a question and one day i was cooking dinner you know i was like on my phone and then i'm like what i was just like not right now and then I, then I start layering like, oh crap, I just screwed up. So I was like, look, mommy was a little stressed. There was a lot of things going on. I really didn't want to talk to you. I just wasn't in the headspace. And my kid's like, okay, mom, can you talk now? I'm like, sure, I can talk now. And when your kids get used to you like apologizing, because I think some people feel like it's a child. I don't have to apologize to a child. But we also do the same. People are like, why does this grown up can't apologize? Well, in childhood, they didn't see grown-up apologize to them. They didn't see that model. And I also appreciated what um, um, Dr. Saski, what you said about menstruation, because uh, my boys just did um, like a sex education class. And what was different, even from when I was in school, they always separated the girls and the boys. And so mm -hmm. this time they were together with girls. And so my boys came home and they were like, they were talking about this thing called a period. And they were saying like girls hips are gonna get big i don't even know why we were there and so my husband says you know you know i'm with mommy like i have to know what's going on with mommy's body to be in a relationship with mommy and i was just like yes husband like that was the right so it is, so it like it like clicked for my boys like they didn't understand why they were there until they because they just didn't make the correlation in between like you can't if you're if you choose to be in a heterosexual relationship you can't do that if you don't understand it. So then I came back with like, because I wasn't in a co-ed class, I, the things I was supposed to know about guys, I just kind of figured it out. And like, nobody wants to just figure out things on the go. So I think it's like super, I feel like, even though Indiana is a state um, that still does abstinence-based sex education, 
I felt that that was like a step forward to learn that they were actually co-ed when they were learning about their body. A small step forward for Indiana. I think we have further steps to go, but I think that was super important. And so I know both of you have opportunities when you work with students. Um, what type of barriers have students face or children face when they're working with their parents? And also, could one of you define neurodivergent? I know what that is. We may have some listeners who are like, what is neurodivergent? What does that mean? And how do you like work with kids when they have a parent who is in conflict with you know, who they are becoming? Like, how do you help that kid like move forward? Because, you know, kids are only going to be with their parents for such a short period of time, but sometimes kids can't see that. They're like, my mom disagrees with the choices I'm making. My life is over. It's like, how do you work um, through that? And then um, can you tell us a little bit about what neurodivergent means and kind of how that shows up um, for people? Because some people don't know what that term means. So uh, I think just to make the terms clear, neurodiversity and neurodivergent are completely different. We are all neurodiverse because we have, even though we they we, we share the we probably share the same brain structures, the way it functions is different. That is exactly why I think psychology even exists is because we are trying to say that every bird every brain works functions and reciprocates in very different ways. So we are all neurodiverse. What we mean by neurodivergent versus neurotypical brains is that our nervous system is aligned in a way that is considered normal or basically a baseline structures are performing to the optimum function, the optimal levels, the neurotransmitters are working in the optimal levels and that's it. That's when we say this person is neurotypical. Neurodivergent again is a way of saying that our brain chemicals, probably some are uh, transmitted in a higher amount, some are transmitted in a lower amount and that's it. That the structures, even though that they are same, the function that it creates, the secretions that they are, they aren't meeting the optimal levels or something is more, something is less. And that is when we, whenever we talk about neurodivergence, we talk about students, kids, people who have learning disabilities, uh, ADHD, autism spectrum disorders, so on and so forth. So this is the only, uh, when we come to terminologies, I think that's that's what these three things mean. Ashley, would you like to add anything to that? I think what I want to add is that the general education way that schools typically happen are designed for neurotypical brains. And so people who usually don't have to try too hard in a normal school setting um, are typically neurotypical humans. And people who are maybe more creative or maybe more hyperactive or maybe more... Um, chaotic and less streamlined, um, these people, our typical school systems don't serve well. And so that doesn't necessarily always mean they have a labeled disability, but it means that like these are our creative types who really enjoy like a studio full of supplies and not working in an organized way and having these amazing, you know, bursts of creative energy. And then those times when they're like really not thinking because their brain works in this like on or off pattern as opposed to like this kind of like train like pattern which is what's most expected of our typical school settings so basically anyone that our school settings don't serve well 
those are our neurodivergent people. And um, they bring so much to our world. They are absolutely essential for our world to, I mean, so there's nothing wrong with a person who is neurodivergent. They bring exactly what we need to our world. Um, it's just that it's easier to create a school setting and to create a, a, a work setting that is based on like a, a typical, um, yeah, <laughs> normal, but those aren't, those aren't real things. Like there is no such thing as normal. It's just this, um, set of requirements that has been decided is, is, is the norm, but it's not a thing. So I guess that's something I wanted to add was like neuro, neurodivergence is, is what we want in our world. There's nothing wrong with, with a neurodivergent person. Absolutely. And they're wonderful. And it's just so much of rawness, which I believe we had, but we don't. This is disappointing. Um, and I think uh, the other aspect to what you did mention about parent and child conflicts. Okay, so parents, flash, newsflash, you cannot be friends with your child. If you're trying to be, you want to be, you cannot be friends with your child. You can be friendly, you can be amicable. <laughs> You can be approachable, you can be askable, but you cannot be a friend to them, even if you try, no matter how hard you try, because um, you fall into a very different circle. As a friend, I think it's a completely different human being with a completely different set of roles, which you can never assume because you're a parent. You are somebody who is guiding, shaping, paving way for them, making sure you're modeling them on a constant basis. You are trying to create a safe structure. You are trying to um, stop bad behaviors. You are trying to tell them what good and bad looks like. Friends, they really don't do that. It's about an emotional, relational system that's there that sort of builds on your skills in a way that sort of builds your emotional and social skills that helps you feel relate helps you understand and explore the world experiment with it not that you as a parent can't do that but understand the roles are going to be extremely different and just by default if there are two different humans in a room they are going to fight at any stage at every stage because we are different. That's what neurodiversity is all about. We are different. We cannot agree on the same things. However, a good skill that I do encourage parents to have, a skill that I'm currently practicing in my home as well when we have conflicts, is trying to find a middle ground. Um, getting a new perspective, stepping out of the box, and viewing the entire situation as a third person, and empowering your child with that skill. When I say introspection, it also means that they can also... You can also add on the ability of them stepping out of the situation and getting a parent's perspective. It's so difficult to visualize and imagine my parent reacted this way. And why did that happen? Why was this so triggering for them? Why did this upset them? What was so wrong about it? And then knowing the reason and going behind that sometimes does help. If you do not understand it, go ahead and ask your parent about it. Just having a why. Because sometimes I tell you, parents can be unreasonable. And that happens because they learn from their own experiences and they try to guard their children. They are trying to stop them. They are trying to structure it. And that safety role, that safety switch in a parent can never go off. Your friends, they can take a risk with you. But your parent, it, they are never going to do that. They're going to help you have your own mistakes. But risking it, I don't think any parent would be up for that. Right? So 
even for parents, I think having and stepping out of that situation and knowing why does my child is not understand this? Why is it not happening? Why, what do they not get about the situation? And then again, going back and asking them, I don't get it. Help me explain. What is it? How does it make you feel? Why do you want to do it? And having, again, we come back to the same thing, you know, if we are starting to having open-ended questions and structuring the why, how, where, from the very beginning, I think as and when you grow up, having these skills and building on these skills becomes a lot more easier. I think I find it to be such a struggle doing it right now because I'm, what, two decades into my existence on earth which means i've lost so much of time uh, that i had for neuroplasticity to able to learn and grow into an adult but now as an adult i am so concrete and so rigid in what i believe that flexibility can be really exhausting because you as an adult have 100 chores that child might have five so for them to pick on things and for you to pick on things there's a lot on your plate and the number of plates that you have to take care of so i think that is is would be like my very simple answer to a very complicated situation that get a perspective it can be very hard but anytime that you feel that you are in a good space try to get a perspective and that sort of is primary in conflict resolution what i wanted to add here is that i love what you're saying and i'm also hearing from parents my kid won't talk to me so if that's your situation and you're like, well, I know from all the experts, they're like, I want my kid to talk to me, but they just shut down. That's okay. This is how this can go. So your kid is mad and they're like, oh, I'm just so mad. And then they shut down, but you want to still have this conversation. So you get shoulder to shoulder with them, never face to face. Face to face means we're fighting. Face to face means we're now two dogs that are about to like lock it, okay? No, 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 never face to face, always shoulder to shoulder with your kid. You're on their level, not looming over them. And you have both sides of the conversation and they're just listening. So that's one way this can go down. Like your kid is mad and they're shut down. You get down on their level and then you go shoulder to shoulder with them and you just say, wow, I'm really mad. I'm curious why you're mad, but we're both mad. So you like, you like recognize you're on the same team. You're both experiencing this together. And then you say, okay, I'm, I'm guessing that you're mad because I said no to whatever the thing. And then you're, and then you say your side, well, and I'm mad because I had to say no seven times and you wouldn't listen like the first two. And so you're having both sides of the conversation and your kid is just there with you. And at any moment they can correct you. And at any moment that they do correct you, you take the correction because you're guessing, right? You're totally making this up. And at that moment, when they correct you and you don't fight against them and you accept that criticism, now they're in, they're in the conversation. So then you say, oh, it's probably you're mad because I said no. And then they say, no, it's not because of that. It's because when I wanted a, a fruit snack a half hour ago, I you said no then. You said you were making dinner. And like, I was hungry then. <laughs> and so then you're like, oh, okay. So now I understand better. And so in that moment, you like take on this correction in a way that's very graceful and you don't fight them and you don't say, well, that's because I was making dinner. You don't fight at that moment. Instead, you're trying to like open the door for them to join you in this conversation. And then it can go from there or whatever thing that's not a fruit stack when they're 17. Right. <laughs> but 
the idea is you can have both sides of this conversation while you're guessing through it. And then they can correct you as they, as you go. And you can be receptive to that correction to get your kid to talk to you even in their moment when they're really shut down. So that's one of the, the suggestions I share with families who have kids that just won't talk. In the end, I think I would just like to add this. Do not av avoid conflicts. Do not even try. It, it actually makes you a better person. It strengthens your relationship all when done in the right way. Um, yeah, don't avoid it. It's good. It's great. It's one of the ways I actually judge relationships or the way I get into any relationships is to, can I have a good fight with this person? And if, that's, if, there's, if that answer is yes, I'm great. I'm good to go. This person is going to add some value in my life. And yeah, don't avoid it. Well, yeah, I, I think that's a life skill like we all can learn because some people are just conflict avoidant. And when you talk about sexuality, like that's a difficult topic for some people anyway. And then when there's a conflict about um, whether that is whether a child is saying that they're having feelings, maybe towards the same gender, or they may feel like they're not in the right body, or they feel like they want to do certain things that you don't agree with. Is like, how do I have this conversation? So I do like your strategy, actually, of like that kind of non, like, it's typical when we're parents, we're like normally standing up, pointing and like moving over the kid. And like sometimes, and I think about being an educator, that's one of the number one skills they teach us when we're having a conflict with a student is to get down on their level. And then when we go home and be parents, we like all the educator stuff that we know is the best practice goes right out the window. And you're like, I can't believe. I'm like, wait a minute. Okay, this is not how I would talk to my students. I need to like refocus my brain and like get myself in a better space. And so what brings you guys joy about uh, the work that you're doing? What brings me joy about the work that I'm doing? It is a skill that can be pervasive throughout all of being a parent or all of being a human. And I love the fact that it's a generalizable skill. I feel like, okay, if you learn a math skill, like it's really only useful for certain careers or certain activities where being able to identify something that you're curious about or something that brings you pleasure or something that makes you uncomfortable or something that um, you're just like, absolutely, I will not engage in. Like those kind of abilities to identify about yourself and then be able to communicate work in all of your life. And so I feel like this kind of work and these kind of topics allow for a human to be super generalized in their world as as successful humans. And so that feels really, really useful to me. I think my what what brings what it brings me so much joy and love and my reasons are going to be threefold. <laughs> Number one, um, it's purely selfish. I love human brains. I love how human reacts. I love to analyze. It's I feel like I could be a Sherlock Holmes about it and understand where is it even coming from. And that's, that mystery for me is, is amazing. I love that. And it's purely selfish. It's a pure occupational goal. I'm loving it. Number two, um, I get to meet amazing people. And it's even though it's only been three years into what I've been doing, um, stepping out, practicing, learning, educating, advocating, it brings me so much joy connecting with different people different opinions, understanding where they come from, but everybody reaching to the same goal, which is making and bringing sexuality and sexual development and sexual education into the mainstream, 
in their own ways, in their own limited avenues, extreme avenues. And it's so much fun to know everyone's story and the narratives they are building, they came from and going ahead. It's truly an inspiration, even for somebody who's just starting out to understand that the kind of work we are doing becomes all the more important because we are laying the foundation, making it, building it so strong that it impacts and empowers people globally. And I think the this segues into my third reason, which is that it brings every time, no matter who I work with, seeing that my clients, students are empowered and they do not use the word shame anymore because no matter where you go, no matter no matter who you speak to, this is such an intimate and a vulnerable area for anybody to accept, talk about, share um, in the right space or even to have a right or safe space, knowing that I can create that for people I meet, uh, for the clients I meet, for the kids I meet and empowering them through that. Um, it's 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 a truly, truly proud moment knowing that educating or teaching one person is going to change the, their relational experiences with 10 other people. And these 10 other people are going to pick these things up. And then it would, it's going on to 10 other more people. It's it's such a beautiful chain. And knowing that I could do something about it in in my limited ways, um, it's, it's, it's always... Um, I don't know. I, I can't describe it in words. I, I saying it brings me joy would be an understatement. It's, it's such a beautiful human thing to do, to help. <laughs> well, ladies, we're running down to the end of the show, and like this is a topic that could have so many parts to it. Uh, but I want to give each of you an opportunity just to give your last final thoughts. Um, keep in mind, you know, educators, teachers, parents, students, um, whatever final thoughts that you would have. And Ashley, I'm going to uh, start with you. So I'm Ashley Robertson, and I wanted to share where you can find me in case you're interested in connecting with me. I curate content on Facebook at Let's Talk About Sex Ed with Miss Ashley. So you can find my business page there or you can find my group. And my group is where I share content so that if you're interested in learning about things, you can just have things in your feed that pop up on a daily basis. I'm also on Instagram, Ms. Ashley Robertson, M-S-A-S-H-L-E-Y, R-O-B-E-R-T-S-O-N. I teach an adapted version of the Our Whole Lives curriculum, and that is a curriculum that works for all ages. Just last week, I did a virtual workshop for a group of people who were over 55, and I teach currently um, a group of sixth graders, and I do parents at the pub nights. So like this content really can be adapted for anyone. So if you have a group of friends that you want to get together and do like a virtual workshop, shoot me a message, and I'd love to create a workshop based on information you're interested in learning. You're like, hey, this whole idea of gender not being binary is kind of wild for me. Could you teach me a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So you can find me on Facebook, Let's Talk About Sex Ed with Ms. Ashley, or you can find me on Instagram, Ms. Ashley Robertson. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Sakshi Tikku. My pronouns are she, her. I'm based in Mumbai, India, and I'm currently practicing as an occupational therapist and a sexuality counselor. So majority of my work actually focuses on ed sexual, uh, sexual education and coaching for parents and caregivers. 
And if you are an adult and, a, and of a consenting age, then I also work with adults of consenting age on one-on-one -on -one or partnered coaching and counseling for people to become more empowered sexual beings. The other aspect of my work also focuses on adapting and finding new ways uh, to give medically accurate, fun, accessible information, which I do by illustrating some of the fun stuff on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, and you can find me by uh, the handle at the rate sex, S-E-X dot love, L-O-V-E dot and O-T. Uh, I go by the same name. The website handle is with the same name where I curate resources. I share blog pieces, articles that I write for magazines and also curate information and resources and tips that I find from creators, sex educators, psychologists, psychiatrists, um, just teachers and students who try to create information and curate those pieces in my resources and tips section. So that's me. Well, uh, Dr. Sashi Tikku and Ashley Robertson, it's been great to have both of you ladies on the show. Um, both of them, uh, I put up their information while they were speaking. And also, you can find them both on uh, Instagram and Facebook. I'm already following their Instagram and their Facebook pages. And later today, I'll share their Facebook pages to my Facebook page so you can easily find it. Um, but great information, um, gave me lots to think about as a parent and as an educator. If you have more questions, please, please, please reach out. Um, and I know even though um, Dr. Sashi is um, based in Mumbai, I know that she works with clients um, outside of India due to the, you know, the opportunities of technology. So don't feel that if you are based outside of India that she's unreachable. Um, you just got to get your time zone <laughs> matched up as we did here uh, today. So thanks so much. And I will um, tune back and talk to you guys soon. Have a great day.